It is 5pm in Salford. Welcome to Tuesday's Richie Allen Show. It is August the 1st already, 2023. It is August. Nice day, as it happens, here in the Northwest. But uh, some pretty horrendous weather to come over the next few days. We should enjoy it while we can. I've got two very interesting guests for you. Your comments, please, via the app for the programme or via richieallen.co.uk. Uncensored. Unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. It's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Now, this hour, I'll be joined by Jana London. Jana's been on the programme before. She's a human rights activist, a women's and children's rights activist, and the founder of the Natural Women's Council. Uh, there's a number of things I'd like to speak with Jana uh, about. One of them, interesting, interestingly enough, is about a horrendous murder that took place in Sligo and why the Irish media is bending over backwards to, um, to avoid revealing very much information about the murderer who has admitted it and is awaiting sentencing. We'll talk about that and other issues with Jana London. And later on, our friend Dr. Jane Dunnigan will be back on the programme as promised last time she was on. So much to get into with Jane. That is a Tuesday's programme. It's your programme. It is the most listened to independent news radio programme anywhere. Thanks for joining me. Yes, lovely. Tis nice and warm. I've got me hand, I've got one hand on, on my mouth here. And, I, and the other hand is on the remote control for the aircon, which I haven't yet fired up. I'm, I'm biding my time. It is warm in the studio this afternoon. Going to kick off with alcohol. As the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak was barracked and booed and heckled today as he did one of those photo opportunities where he was pouring a pint with his sleeves rolled up, trying to look like one of the lads, you know, Rishi Sunak. Why was he barracked and heckled? Well, because a major shake-up of the way alcohol is taxed has begun, meaning that drinks in the UK will cost more from today. I'm a poet, don't I know it? Now, the Treasury says these are new common-sense principles. Tax will be levied on alcohol according to a drink's strengths right? Duty will increase overall. Most wines and spirits will see rises, but um, the prices, the taxes will fall on lower alcohol drinks and most sparkling wine. Indeed. Let's hear from an expert in the industry. Speaking to GB News, Sam Brooks is the managing director of Vintage Acquisitions, whiskey expert as well. This is not good for hospitality, Sam Brooks tells GB News. Um, I think, as people have said before, producers are already being hit with skyrocketing production costs with rent, energy, dry goods, transport, distribu- distribution costs. It, it seems endless. Um, and then with your hospitality, with your pubs, your bars, restaurants, social clubs, struggling to break even and stay open, it, it's a massive kick in the teeth. Um, what about the point though, that's being made that this uh, system of taxing on strength rather than category uh, is beneficial for health? And as you've indicated, you know, the proof on some of these whiskies is, is pretty high and can do a lot of damage. Nanny state much? Yeah, but that's no indication of how much people are drinking. 
you know, um, you know, somebody might have one dram of whiskey a, a week and somebody might drink 10 pints of, of uh, low alcohol lager a day. I mean, it, you know, it, it's really down to the individual and it's discriminating against um, preference of taste. You know, like many of your viewers have said and the young lady that was on before, you know, she doesn't like drinking beer. Um, she likes to have a glass of wine and, and consumers are experiencing prolonged cost of living crisis, they're experiencing persistent uh, high inflation, especially for food and drink. Uh, and some of the hardworking men and women of this great country, tragically, won't be able to enjoy the, the standard, you know, drink after work in a pub or unwinding with a glass of wine or a dram at home with family and friends. And, and that is really tragic. It is. The prices are already astronomical anyway. Anywhere you go, whether it's to a pub in Salford, whether it's Manchester city centre, you're looking at five and a half, six pounds for a pint. Who can afford that, right? And the other aspect of this is, of course, the, the pandemic, the number of businesses that were forced to, to shut down, the impact it had on hospitality up and down the country. And it's still happening. And that's, this is not going to help, is it? Obviously not. No, not at all. I mean, many feel the government are attacking a sector that's already on its knees. And inevitably, some, are, some won't be able to stay afloat uh, with, with obviously small to medium businesses most at risk. When will they get it? When will they get it? This is by design and not by accident. It isn't by accident. It isn't by poor policy decisions. This is by design. They've been going after hospitality for years, forcing the closure of thousands of local pubs, pushing publicans towards city centres, effectively kettling the industry. And now they're swinging the axe. They don't like pubs. Pubs have no place in the dystopian society. They are manufacturing. Yes, six minutes past the hour. Let's leave that for a moment. We'll return to it though. Maybe not this programme, but right soon. Now, Tory backbenchers are livid. What are Tory backbenchers? They are Conservative Party MPs who are not in the government, if you understand. They're on the back benches. They don't have ministerial roles. Now, these backbenchers believe that net zero policies will destroy even the very slim chance that the Conservative Party has of winning the next general election. Let's uh, have a listen to Transport Minister Richard Holden. He was on BBC Radio 4 this morning and he was asked, is there any truth that the government will kowtow to these backbenchers and delay the ban on the production of new petrol and diesel cars? That ban due to come in in 2030. BBC Radio 4, you'll hear the presenter first. This is the point made very forcefully by a Conservative supporting newspaper this morning, The Sun, who've got a, a five-point plan of things they want to the government to deliver on all green issues, but one of them, point four, um, uh, point three, I'm sorry, is delay the 2030 diesel and petrol car ban until the country is ready, as they put it. Is the government willing to think about doing that? Well, well just let's look at that, actually. There is, can I just be very clear, there is no car ban. This is just on new vehicles being yeah. purchased. And also, it's not uh, actually 2030, because actually, if, in terms of hybrid vehicles, uh, those are still going to be available to uh, 2035. So I think, in, you know, you know the, uh, things which suggest that there's some form of ban coming in and people won't be able to do things is well, just not... Hang just on a second. People will not be able to buy a new diesel or petrol 
only car after 2030. That's, that, that's correct, but that's right. different to saying that they're so going to be banned. But that's uh, the you point. Know, to, because, because second-hand sales will continue for many yeah. years to come. The new, new ones, the sale of new ones will be banned, which is the point the Sun is making, and what they're also saying, plus 43 of your Conservative backbench colleagues saying, it's too early to do that. Well, we, as I said, we've already got that. Uh, the, the hybrids will continue till the mid-2030s. Till the mid-2030s. When they sound confused and vague, it's because, as I have claimed on this show many times before, my opinion, this is my opinion, uh, these idiots like Richard Holden, the Transport Minister, have I given him the correct title there? Yes, Transport Minister Richard Holden. They're not in charge of anything. They deliver these agendas on behalf of a third party, right? We know who the... Well, we don't really know who the third party is. There are many, many agencies, many think tanks, many civil servants, many funded organisations like the World Economic Forum. But these guys don't do anything other than delivered, hence they sound very vague when they're questioned occasionally by BBC presenters. Interesting. You know that Just Stop Oil was pranked recently. You know this, you've seen the video. YouTubers pranked them by setting off alarms and attaching them to balloons during a Just Stop Oil meeting. Not the greatest prank now I've ever seen, but it was a prank. Well, Josh Peters and Archie Manners were the guys behind the prank. And speaking to Good Morning Britain this morning, Josh Peters had an interesting take on the members of Just Stop Oil. Isn't this something we've been saying for many years? It seemed that they were more interested in being rebels and their group that they'd formed, which felt like it was them against the world. Mm. And they were becoming more interested in being arrested and wow. becoming the sort of face of a rebellion rather than actually wanting to tackle climate change. How interesting. Which I found really interesting. Yeah, so do I. But it's something I've been saying for a long time. Narcissism reigns in 2023. We see this right across the so-called alternative media. It's the same thing, whether it's just stop oil activists, everybody wants to be the story, people don't want to report on it anymore and just give you a set of facts and give you an interesting interview. They've got to be the story these days. And that's very interesting. He says the just stop oil people more interested in being rebels and achieving attention for being arrested and, and what not. Very interesting. We see this right across society, don't we? People determined to be in the public domain or to have the attention of the public for one reason or another. Narcissism and attention-seeking reigns. Well, it does. It just reigns. It rains. It's raining cats and dogs, attention-seekers. Like I said, I've been banging on about this, about the alt-media for years. You know, guys and gals who want to be the story. It's always about them. It's never about the issues. Going to be talking about this with Mark Windows tomorrow. He's been broadcasting about this. Fascinating. We'll do that tomorrow. It should be a bit of fun. Yes. What am I doing now? It's 11 minutes past five. Right. Couple of clips then from Talk TV. Julia Hartley Brewer staying with climate nonsense for a moment. Steve Reed is the Shadow Justice Secretary. This means he's a Labour MP, and it means if Labour wins the next general election, he will be the Justice Secretary. Anyway, he wasn't too sure of himself when talking about how much of the power generated for the UK grid right now comes from renewables. Steve, 
How much power comes from renewables right now? Julia Hartley Brewer asks him in a moment. It's, um, well, it's very entertaining. If our government had invested in homegrown energy, nuclear, wind, wave, solar, you know, we, we've got plenty of wind and waves in this country. It's an island. We could be harnessing that to provide the clean energy of the future. It costs three times less no, to generate energy that way. No, it doesn't. Than it, yes, it does. No, it doesn't because them, you have to have the... Out. No, yes, it, it does. doesn't, Steve. Yes, this is the big lie. You Because it's and not reliable and you can't store it. And there, we haven't got the battery storage. That would cost trillions. It doesn't exist right now. No one thinks it's going to exist in the next 10, 20 years. Well, look, uh, no, 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 Steve. It, it did. That is simply untrue. No, Steve, what you said was untrue. Liar, liar, your pants is on fire. Of course it's untrue. Is that renewables? Electricity generated by renewables, three times cheaper than conventional, than fossil fuels. Nonsense. It's utter nonsense. You can Google it or Yahoo it, if you like, or duck, duck, go it, depending on your search engine of choice. She's calling them out here. Because you have to have the gas pa- gas stations and you have to have the nuclear power stations to back up when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. So you have a double cost. So you're miscounting. All you have to do is look across the channel and see the difference in their bills compared They've to They've got our nuclear bills. power stations there's a, there's coming a out of their ears. That's happening, Julia. It's not by chance. Uh, we, we had some of the biggest increases in the world, despite having North Sea oil yeah, because, uh, over the last because couple of years. Because we're not a net exporter That's because anymore. Because we don't have enough of our own energy. No, I've been on this show before, and I've said it before, and I'll say it again. We need to take back control of our energy and generate it here at home. It not just gives it gives us cheaper energy, but it gives us a more secure supply, so that we're not, not dependent secure. on poor dictators. It's not but it also gives us jobs. It, it gives us jobs. Okay, build, let me ask well, you. I'm, I'm, I'm question, I've just future. been discussing what this with Ross Cook. Let me just ask you, Stevie. What percentage of our energy in this country is being produced on an average day from wind and solar power? He should know this. He is a shadow cabinet secretary of state in waiting. Give us the number, Steve. I bet you a pound to a penny. This is unfair because I've already heard this. But when I heard it live, I, I bet myself a pound to a penny that Steve would be like, uh, blah, blah, blah. he'd be like Grace. He'd be like Grace. You remember Grace in Ferris Bueller's Day Off? In Ed Rooney's office. He doesn't know, will you hear? Um, I, I don't Give know take. that. But if you, no, oh, well, no, no, you're, come on, you're a front bench folks and you want to be in the cabinet. She's very shrill, eh? A year's time, roughly... I know I've said that before. What percentage? <laughs> It's not a pub quiz, and I'm afraid I don't know the answer. What do you mean it's not a pub quiz, dipstick? You're a minister, or a shadow minister. Tell us. Give us the percentage of renewables. Answer to that question. But if you okay, if I asked hand, you, if I asked you, is it in the region of, of is it in the region of ten percent, twenty percent, fifty percent, eighty percent? Any, you can't, you can't be a front bench spokesman or want much to be in the cabinet. Much less than France. Much less than France. Much less than than France. Greg Hans says that. But she's already said France has got nuclear power stations. That drilling more oil out of the North Sea does not lower energy bills in this country or increase yeah, our, uh, our own energy security. It's not, there's not the chairman of the Conservative Party. Yeah, I'll tell you why. We won't, I, I will not subject you to any more of this piffle, this drivel. Of course, the reason why drilling in the North Sea thus far has failed, even before Putin's, I don't know, sojourn into Ukraine, I'll tell you why even predating it, it never brought energy bills down here. You know why? Because it, it gets sold on the international market. You see, an old socialist might say, if you're going to drill oil and gas in the North Sea, why don't you reserve it exclusively for British use? Yeah, 
They never get into that, though. Julia Hartley Brewer will tell you, I'm the alternative. We're the alternative. We are the alternative media. We're the alternative to the BBC. No, you're not, because you don't ask the right questions. Yes, it doesn't make things less expensive by drilling in the North Sea, but it would do if we drilled it and didn't sell it to anybody and used it for ourselves, you know. But they never say this. This is the Richie Allen Show, 16 minutes past the hour. I happen to be Richie Allen. Ian was on to say regarding the increase in taxation on alcohol. Ian says, I'm convinced the World Economic Forum elites, of which Sunak is one, they see themselves as managers of ant farms. They do not want us pissed up or dying without their expressed permissions. So they want to price the majority out of alcohol and tobacco. It's not that they want healthy ants, but broken, joyless, compliant ants. Yes, but Ina, I feel like a hypocrite if I agree with you. Because for years, for years, they managed societies by giving them bread and circuses, by giving them enough to eat just about, plenty of sports to watch, and, and... Stella and McEwen's, yes, and Harp, and if you're from Waterford, Hoffman's. So I hear you, Ian. You might be right. Maybe they've decided now, let's just drop the bread in circuses. Let's make life so bloody miserable. We'll break these people into billions of pieces and then we'll pick them up and we'll remake them, remold them in the way we want so that they will accept the technocratic lunatic asylum they're building. Hi to Graham. Who says, Richie, at this rate, I'll be popping off down the woods to sample Jethro the Hobo's summer vintage moonshine gut rot. Yes, we call it Puccine back home. It's gorgeous. Made out of potatoes. There isn't anything in Ireland that isn't made out of a potato. We've even got um, hybrid cars that are powered by potato juice. Or we should do in the future if we want to offset the devastating effects of climate change. Nothing in Ireland that hasn't been made out of a potato. <laughs> the potato. <laughs> Should do a show on the famine soon, shouldn't we? The one of the greatest. And speaking of hoaxes, I sure the Irish, the little people were, were were so stupid that when there was a potato blight, they all starved to death. No, no, that's not what happened. I'm not getting into that now. It's um eighteen and a half minutes past the hour. Keep those messages coming in, RichieAllen.co.uk. I might as well confess I've I've been taking speed the last three days. It's for um it's for acne. I haven't been taking speed at all. Faisal says, this is ridiculous. Carbon, catch, carbon capture projects that are much more of a problem, at least the alternative energy stuff does actually generate some energy. This is a headline that he's grabbed presumably from, from Bloomberg, is it? UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is expected to announce multi-million pound funding for a carbon capture project in Scotland. Well, carbon capture is where they take the CO2 out of the air and they bury it under the sea. I don't know how they do that. I don't know how that works. Do you? Any idea? What does the CO2 get stored in? Canisters? Do they? Tupperware? Did they fill Tupperware because nobody's buying it anymore with CO2 and bury it alongside Davy Jones's locker? I don't get this stuff. It is mad. It is bullshit. And Faisal asks a good question. How do you do that without creating lots more CO2? The answer is they know that CO2 is no problem. It's a life-giving gas. Yes. <sighs> it's all mad, isn't it? What are we going to do? What are we going to do when they eventually say you cannot make 
you cannot produce and you cannot listen to programmes like this. What are we going to do then? We'll have to meet up somewhere, I suppose. Uh, Diane was on to ask about the P.O. Box. Yes, there is an article on the website. And if you go to support your show, you will find P.O. Box details for your Richie Allen show if you feel like sending some snail mail. If you feel like it. Thank you. Penny has been on to say, Hello, Penny. So people who use alcohol may switch to pharmaceuticals if alcohol becomes too expensive. Yes, Penny. Why not? Why not indeed? Where am I going next? Where am I going next? We've had enough of Steve Reed. Listen, we'll talk to Janet London about this shortly. Costa Coffee. Do you pop into a Costa Coffee occasionally for a nice coffee, do you? Do you? I have to say, I purchased for my missus, not 18 months ago, a beautiful coffee-making machine. You misogynistic fecker. No, I don't drink coffee. So I didn't buy it for myself. It wasn't like Homer Simpson buying Marge a bowling ball. Uh, Marge, if you don't want it, I'll use it. It wasn't one of those presents. I do not drink tea. I do not drink coffee. I detest them. Yes. So I bought her a coffee machine so she could have good coffee. And she puts in beans, proper beans in there. And she likes the Costa Coffee Number 5 Amazonian blend. But I'm not sure if she'll be buying it from now on. So it's, it, it's, Costa Coffee has emblazoned, emblazoned upon a van here in the UK, an image of a trans man after a double mastectomy. Let me just unpack that for you. Trans man post-double mastectomy means in plain English woman who chopped her tits off because she thought she was a man. I don't understand why the Telegraph doesn't use the language of the people. It is the language of the people. An advert of a trans man following a double mastectomy. Woman who went mad and chopped off her tits is how you could say it. So anyway, this is causing problems for Costa Coffee. Just a few. Because people are boycotting it now. The UK's largest coffee chain has defended its use of the image, the cartoon of the trans man with the scars visible where the breasts used to be. Yes, it's been called bonkers. It's an androgynous looking character wearing long shorts with scars below each nipple. And the image was taken from a mural designed by Costa for the Brighton and Hove Pride last year. What are they doing? Stephanie Davies, how, how do you pronounce her name? Is it Davis Array or Array? Stephanie Davies will call her. I think she was on this show a few years ago. Anyway, she's uh, the director of Transgender Trend. She says, uh, this is being pushed on children as if having a major operation is just the same as changing your clothes. <clears throat> yeah. Excuse me, now the co-founder of Thoughtful Therapists, James Esses, broke the story on Twitter. Here he is speaking to Julia Hartley Brewer. James Esses, who co-founded Thoughtful Therapists. The idea that we should be celebrating this. Now, I, I, I'm so repulsed and horrified by this image. I, I cannot believe that this passed muster. But this is what means you're, you're a nice company these days, apparently. 
Oh, look, it's it's absolutely crazy. When I first saw the image yesterday, somebody sent it to me. I was hoping and praying that it was some sort of wind up, that it had been yep, photoshopped. Space, yeah. But I but I knew in my in my gut that it was true because we're seeing this time and time again from these corporations. I mean, it's interesting that you just had Lloyd Russell Moyle on. I, I've got a few things to say to him myself, and he had the audacity to accuse those individuals who take umbrage with this of of being judgmental. Yeah. I mean, you know, this, this is the same individual who's told parents previously that if they view their children according to biological sex, they're being quote-unquote abusive. So anyway, that's... Uh, that, judgy, that's judgy. Yes, it, it depends on your judgment. Yes, so, uh, yes uh, biological fact is judgment now. Well, well, this is it. And look, this this cartoon is offensive for, for two reasons. Firstly, it's already been touched upon, you know, the impact that it's having on women who have had to undergo mastectomies, for example, for breast cancer. And here they are looking at basically the glorification of removing healthy breasts where there's absolutely nothing wrong with them. Yeah. Whatsoever. But more importantly is the impact that this is having on children being surrounded by this imagery yes. and having basically said to them as young girls, well, look, you can get your breasts chopped off, you can become a man and you can be happy. You can even feel euphoric as a result of it. I mean, it's so dangerous and damaging, particularly to young girls who may already despise their bodies. Yes. Now, Paulie has been in touch to ask or to say, you tea caddies. Paddies, I love your spuds. Was it a little ignorant of me to say that when I get accused of cultural appropriation? Asks Paulie. Well, if you think of it in these terms, if you pursue this lunatic agenda where people who are not, I don't know, gay are not entitled to play gay characters in films and so on, so on, so on. If you go down the cultural appropriation route, if young white girls who might look up to black singers, female black singers, and the young girl says, do you know what, I'd love dreadlocks, mammy, and mammy says the hairdresser around the corner is not going to be able to give you dreadlocks, so we'll have to take you to Dublin for your dreadlocks. If that becomes cultural appropriation, well, eventually, if you follow that yellow brick road, anybody who eating a potato who isn't Irish could be accused of cultural appropriation. But then, people were eating spuds long before the Irish, as far as I understand it. Hi to Richard, who says amphetamine was first developed by the Nazis for their troops. Chris says the carbon capture scheme laid out for the USA has a price tag on it of multi-quadrillion dollars. Rob's been on to say how long until they ban beer and carbonated drinks completely. After all, they are carbonated with CO2, says Rob. Rob's a... He's on the ball there, is Rob. Hi, Rob. Okay, what have I missed out? Have I missed some messages? I have, I have, I have. But I've got to proceed. Here's uh, Jane Weedlin and Rush Hour for you on Tuesday's Richie Allen Show. And I'm Richie Allen, your BBG, live from Salford. Where it's uh, toasty in the studio. Time for some Aircon 4, I think. Inform the Joint Chiefs we're moving to Aircon 4. Jane Weedlin, Rush Hour on the Richie Allen Show. It's exactly half five this Tuesday, uh, the 1st of August, 2023. It's, um, it's a mad old world we inhabit. 
Let's welcome back to our programme the founder of the Natural Women's Council, a campaigner for freedom for human rights and the rights of women and children. I like this lady. Let's welcome Jana London back to the programme. How are you doing, Jana? I'm wonderful, Richie. How are you? Asher, I'm still alive. Thank God, I'm still alive. Uh, there's so much I want to get through in a half an hour, so I'm just going to fire a few things at you. Um, when will these companies like Costa Coffee and Bud Light realise that none of us want to be, um, I don't know how I even say this, programmed or pushed or nudged, is that we don't want to have agendas rammed down our throats. Just serve us some coffee, please please, or service of beer, and stop with some of this nonsense that we saw um, overnight where they put a ridiculous cartoon on a van of a trans man after a double mastectomy with the scars showing. Um, it's relentless, this, is it? Yeah, it's in our face 24-7. Um, I saw that ad with Costa Coffee, and we've recently just today started a boycott Costa campaign and I was delighted to go into it. I usually go to the small local shops owned by small companies anyway, rather than the franchises, but we're starting a boycott Costa campaign. I, I don't understand how they can use a healthy young girl with a zipper chest who has removed healthy breast tissues to go down into transgenderism as a marketing tool. It's absolutely disgusting. You wonder, don't you? Because, look, you're an intelligent woman. You're a mum. You're a career lady. I always wonder about these things. Who raised this at which board meeting? And did anybody there laugh out loud and say, uh, no, lads, no, no, that's a bit ridiculous, you know what I mean? There seems to be no, in terms of a, a, at the corporate level anyway, Jana, same with Bud Light, there doesn't seem to be anybody who says, Guys, this is ridiculous. Can we not just make tasty beer and tasty coffee and forget about social engineering? That's none of our business, right? Yeah, I think so. I think that they must be, you know, if you follow the money trail, the cost of coffee will probably get more money promoting the young girl with the zipper chest than they will selling a few hundred thousand coffees. So if they did the risk benefit analysis, perhaps it's coming down to somebody must be funding it. I can't believe that any, I, I worked in senior management for many years in a multinational. I can't believe anyone would sit around a table and say, yeah, let, let's put that up as, as our promotion. Let's, let's promote this, uh, you know, mutilation of healthy breasts. That, that's great. <laughs> it has to be the money. It has to be the money. It has to be the money. As I said, there's loads we're going to get through. We will talk, of course, about Think Local in a few minutes' time. Let's talk about this pathetic label, which is being levelled at anybody who the establishment, by the establishment I mean the government or the media, anybody they do not want you to hear in 2023, they level the term far right at them. Now, Jana London is the furthest thing from far right you could ever get. And I watch from a distance, me, so I know I'm, I'm not going to say I'm a friend of Jana's, we've never met, maybe we will one day, over a point, but I'm fair. There's nothing far right about this lady. Isn't it ironic, Jana, that I've been in the media for 26 years and I have people, contacts working at RTE, friends, old friends, guys that are not so friendly, but I know a lot of people. And I reached out to RTE recently and I said, um, you, you really love 
throwing around the old far-right term at people without affording them the right of reply or at least properly representing what it is they are asking for or campaigning for. Um, why are, I said this to an RTE reporter, why are you doing everything in your power to avoid discussing the circumstances around the murders of Aidan Moffat and Michael Snee in Sligo? Two men who were murdered by the man who admitted it, a guy called Yusuf Palani, a 23-year-old gentleman. Um, why are you completely blocking any coverage of what happened to these men or why? Needless to say, I've had no response whatsoever. I've also asked our national broadcaster back home, Jana, why are you not investigating the circumstances of Mr Palani's presence in Sligo? What the hell is he doing there? No, the media isn't interested. It's asleep on its watch. But if you ask about the, the the sanity of introducing, you know, very difficult concepts around gender to young children. Well, Jana, you're a far right Nazi. I am. I'm a far right Nazi, bigot, fascist. Uh, all those labels that were th- have been thrown at me over the last few years for being, you know, trying to ask questions about things that don't make sense trying to protect children from being pushed down a transgenderism path, trying to teach children to love the bodies they're born in, and all of the things that any responsible mother or father should do. Yet when I do those things, I'm labeled. So now we have a hashtag right so far that we want to get trending in Ireland. Uh, All the girls and the uh, ladies in the Natural Women's Council and Irish Education Alliance and Lawyers for Justice Ireland and Parents' Rights Alliance, we've started a hashtag right so far. So they can call us far right, but really we've been right so far about most of these issues that we're, we're standing up against. And even the Lord Mayor down in Cork, Cork Library pulled I don't know if you saw that uh, across the pond there. Cork Library pulled a real a real PR stunt saying that they had to close the library for the safety of the staff due to these far right thugs spreading hate. And they had to close it because a banner was put across their door. However, that was complete fabrication, blatant lies. The library made a decision to close before the peaceful assembly even turned up and the men and women who did the peaceful assembly have photos and videos of walking up to the door that already had the close sign up but they twisted it that they had to close due to the ferocious attacks and danger on their staff when they're not even mentioning the content of these sexually explicit books instead they're attacking mothers like me for trying to keep these pornographic Uh, sex manuals that are fetishizing children, trying to keep them away from children. But we're far right, dangerous people. It's It's so inverted. It's it's dreadful. Yeah, I I laughed out loud at morning Ireland's coverage of it yesterday, interviewing the Lord Mayor of Cork. And he talked about the need to close the library because the banner might fall and might hurt somebody. And then he referenced another library where three people turned up, just three, to ask about a book. And he effectively said the librarians locked themselves into the library to protect themselves from the far-right hate mob, which was three people um, who are not really far-right. Look, I, 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 I saw that video, Richie. Those three people were just going in to ask questions about the books and they couldn't find the staff. They did a video. The staff, you know, ran behind the door, <laughs> locked the door from these violent thugs, which were was a mummy and a daddy going in saying, why are these books in front of the children's eyes? It's just it's it's so surreal. You know, five years ago, if I thought this would, would happen, I wouldn't believe it. It's just so surreal to see that 
people actually think this material to sexualize and indoctrinate innocent children, both through the libraries, but the school curriculum that people anyone in their right mind would think it's okay yeah. when it's clearly not. And look, I, I, I'm, I'm just going to finish up on where I came in on that point about this guy, um, Polanyi. And you don't have to comment on this. Of course you don't. It's your right not to comment on it. But I'm making a point here as a trade unionist, as a socialist, as somebody who would stand up for anybody who's marginalised, no matter where they come from. Um, what's happened here is absolutely heinous what happened in Sligo. And I'm making the point, it's not to bash the guy, um, Yusuf Polani, or where he comes from, but it's because if an Irish man or woman who maybe had been asking questions about, um, you know, illegal immigration or, or, or whatever, had been, um, had admitted to committing such an atrocious crime, the media would be all over it. Uh, the details would not be spared uh, the population. This is a point I want to make. It's disgraceful. I'm going to say it. Jana doesn't have to say it. This guy murdered these men because they were gay and he did unspeakable things to them, which I won't mention because I'm sure there are people listening who might have children in the room. I mean, this was a house of horrors type thing. And uh, I, I don't live in Ireland anymore, but I believe as, as an Irish citizen and I believe the people of Sligo have an absolute right to find out who is this guy? What motivated him to do these murders? Are there other guys like him in the country who may have snuck into the country in, with, with groups of people, many of whom might be legitimate asylum seekers? These are legitimate questions, fair questions, and the Irish media would prefer to label people as Nazis because they take umbrage at ridiculous books that should be nowhere near children. I'm just saying that. You don't have to comment on that if you don't want now. We can move on. I, I would love to comment on it because I have really strong views on the mischaracterization of that horrific crime by the media, that crime and the Ashley Murphy crime. Uh, they reported it very heavily. You know, poor woman running, Ashley Murphy gets murdered. That was horrific. Uh, must be a crime on women. Oh, women are getting attacked. And then there was the poor man in Sligo. Oh, my gosh, this is an attack on the gay community. However, with both of those crimes, the media went radio silent, dead silent, when it turned out that the uh, criminal who committed such crimes in both events were uh, immigrants to Ireland, probably asylum seekers. Were they vetted? I don't know. And they went silent. It didn't fit their narrative. All the vigils, all the vigils stopped. All the sympathizing stopped. It just went silent and the news moved right on to the next thing. And, you know, they did, they really were talking about the Sligo crime and the Ashling Murphy crime when it fit their agenda but when the agenda when it when it didn't suit the piece of the puzzle didn't suit their agenda they dropped that story so fast which was so disrespectful to the families the families i believe must have seen through uh the political uh, uh agenda pushing that, that the media were doing in both both of those cases absolutely jana i i didn't qualify as such english and history are my um Majors, and then I did a postgraduate in television and radio here in Salford, funnily enough, right? So I didn't do journalism at third level, but I'm a journalist, I was trained. I mean, there's only one question here now after these gentlemen are laid to rest and their family mourn them, and that is who is this guy and what the hell was he doing in Ireland? How, in the name of God, can such a man escape? Um, the scrutiny of those charged with protecting the Irish people, uh, you know, when it comes to vetting people coming in. Who 
was the guy and what the hell was he doing in the country? But I suppose, uh, I mean, I'm not watching RTE or listening to the radio. They're probably moving mountains not to discuss this. And anybody who asks the question will be called uh, Islamophobic or bigoted when there isn't any more legitimate question than how the hell could such a guy get in? I think Helen McEntee and Roderick O'Gorman have an awful lot to answer. Uh, I know uh, Helen McEntee has been requested by some political parties that she steps down and resigns. She is uh, really quickly leading to the destruction of this country. And these thousands, I think we're up nearly nearly to 80 or 90,000 of these uh, asylum seekers, immigrants, they're unvetted. And when this started, and I, I'm an immigrant, so I'm not anti-immigrant. I am an immigrant. I came 20 years ago. And when this all started, this mass unvetted immigration, it was when the Ukraine war kicked off and it's going to be women and children coming over and any man under 60 will stay back. But all the men coming are single men on their own. We don't see many women and children coming from countries that aren't Ukraine, countries that, you know, are they really seeking asylum? Some of them have been coming from countries where they already were safe. Uh, They're coming and getting dumped in hotels. Uh, in small towns. You saw what happened probably in Ballybrack. Um, the residents are, are actually having to police the community because the authorities are completely failing to answer to why these unvetted single young fighting age men are being planted in their town. Uh, you may have seen video footage of the Garda uh, doing a kind of snatch squad snatch operation where they just picked up men and, and snatched them out of the crowd when they really looked to be very peaceful. One was holding an Irish flag. It, it, it's just really, really tragic what's happening to the to the Irish people here. Isn't that interesting? We saw this in the UK over the years. We saw how the media particularly and the police tried to spin a narrative, which I think did take hold, that um, being patriotic in any way is in fact not to be patriotic, but to be bigoted and hateful. And this really worked. I saw a very interesting tweet from a guy recently who's based in Nottingham. And he seemed to be okay, the guy. He was talking about one or two things on Twitter. And then he said that he he took umbrage with somebody he was speaking to on Twitter because the guy had the Union Jack in, not on his um, Twitter um, bio, but he had it on a wall behind him at, at, at home. And I thought, this is extraordinary. The guy is British. You know, it's, it's not unreasonable that he might have a British flag or an emblem of, um, of, of, of Britain or the Empire. And it's the same. It's, it's happened in Ireland, hasn't it? They've created or spun a narrative whereby the flag, our flag, our tricolour, our tricolour, is somehow to, 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 to hold it dear, to carry it with you, is somehow to be some sort of hateful xenophobe. That's amazing to me. Imagine being Irish standing in Ireland with an Irish flag and you're yeah. a racist xenophobe. I mean, who would ever have thought it came to this place, particularly with what the Irish went through? I mean, you, you may have seen, uh, Richie, the, um, in Ireland now, even in our schools, you know, we, we talked a while back about the, the changes to the SPHE program, which is teaching boys and girls in school that they can be either a boy, girl, neither or both, regardless of the sex they were assigned at birth. Now they're looking to bring in critical race theory, which came from America. And, you know, that's going to be teaching children that um, they should feel privileged for being white, male or Irish. Now, given Ireland's history, I'm not Irish myself, but, you know, Ireland's population pre-famine, as you know, was about eight and a half million and about four million people either died or emigrated. So 
Irish people don't need to apologize nor feel guilty for their history. You know, they were victims of the colonial empire for 800 years and a famine or perhaps genocide wiped, you know, half the country out. So why should an Irish person feel guilty for being white, male, Irish, holding an Irish flag or any such thing? And this is being all pushed onto our young children. It's just you couldn't make it up. No, and on the critical race theory, I'm I'm glad you brought this up. So I spoke about this on my own website today um, briefly. The Telegraph and the Times, to be fair, supposedly diametrically opposed newspapers in terms of their editorial, but not really, as as we know. Uh, Thousands of schools in this country have been told they must teach critical race uh, theory to children as young as five. And John has summed it up brilliantly there. It came out of America in the 70s. Scholars developed this idea because they, they thought that racial progress had slowed down after the civil rights marches and the legislation in the 1960s. And this idea is basically that racism is systemic in, at the time they said, in America's institutions. And that the institutions of the country basically function to do one thing, and that is to maintain the dominance of one people in society and that's arrived on these shores in recent years and do you know what Jana you're a mum I can't speak to this because I unfortunately I don't have any children but um, it seems to me and tell me I'm talking through my backside here if, if you think I am but it seems to me like something is happening in recent years very recent years it's almost like there's an agenda to to almost psychologically abuse children by telling them how 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 bad they are, how worthless they are, how wrong they are, how much unconscious bias they have, how unworthy they are, and then of course how privileged they are, and that surely, I, I mean it's bad enough to do that. I mean we've we've read millions of times over the years about how abusive men do this to women, you know. But doing that to children, constantly telling them that there's something wrong with them, basically just because of who they are, that's got to have a profoundly negative effect on their development, right? A hundred percent. And teaching, you know, whether it's the transgenderism or this critical race theory, what it does is it breaks down a child's self-esteem and their sense of certainty. So a child, really, what we should be focusing on in the school system is teaching a child acceptance, to love and accept themselves no matter how they're born. Nobody's perfect. Nobody should aim to be perfect. Perfection is a barrier. Um, But children should be taught to love themselves, whether they're male, female, black, white, Irish, American, gay, straight, however they're born, they are born right for them. They're in the right body and it can't be changed. So why don't we teach children acceptance? Why must we teach them to feel guilty? You know, I have a little boy who's five. So if he goes, if he does go into the public schools, I'm getting one step closer to homeschooling every day. But if he does go into the schools, he's going to be taught to feel guilty because he's well, he's white. He's he's green eyed, blonde hair, white. So he's going to feel really guilty. He's Irish and he's male. I mean, why should he feel guilty? That's how he's born. Why should he feel guilty about that? It's it's detrimental. So it also draws attention to an issue that really wouldn't be an issue. So if we teach children, they should feel privileged, that they're privileged for being white, male or Irish. Will this make them feel superior? And will it bring in a white supremacist attitude or will it make them feel guilty? So either way, it's a lose-lose. Can I ask you, you don't have to get into specifics, but how... Are you making, I mean, you might not choose to homeschool. You might decide there's, 
there, you know, that there is a school, that there is a place within the school system for your son. But how far advanced are your contingency plans, I suppose, Jana? Yeah, they, they're they not as advanced. Uh, they're slower than the agenda is. The agenda is coming at us like a train going 100 miles an hour. So I'm not quite at that speed. But I could easily, um, from a financial perspective, my contingency plan is I'm a uh, self-employed personal and business life coach. And I'm just also going through getting my qualification for NLP. So that part of that plan was so I could be financially independent and I also could homeschool my children if indeed I wish to do that, whereby I can do my uh, work or my clients around my children's schedule so I can still be their full-time mom that I've been for the last uh, eight years with my daughter and five years with my son. So my contingency as far as being able to support them is there. The homeschool network still needs to be built, but we had uh, scheduled two wonderful home educators to attend Think Local to do a, a fantastic presentation on their journey. They've homeschooled between the two of them for 30 years. And, um, you know, they have a network where they have other parents in their network, their children have friendships, extracurricular activities. So I think we could we could get that up and running pretty quickly if we decided to. And what a homeschool co-op would do is it would allow families who maybe need to have both parents working or maybe a solo parent situation, uh, a homeschool co-op would allow them to homeschool and home or home educate, I should say, their child. Um, and then someone else might homeschool the group of kids on a Tuesday, someone else on a Wednesday, et cetera. So you can still maintain a job to have pay the bills but different families do it in a co-op system. So I think that could get up and running pretty quickly. And if stuff really gets bad in schools and this stuff does come in and it takes over the curriculum, uh, I will have my kids out straight away because their welfare, well-being, confidence and loving themselves is number one. Paramount. Importance. Paramount of importance. Paramount, 100%. They, we have one shot at childhood. My good friend, a uh, good friend of mine who, who also helped plan Think Local, he, he ha has a great, a, a great way to put it. We have one shot at getting childhood right. We have one chance, one shot to get it right for our children's childhood. And if we mess that up, there's no second chance. We have to get it right. I've had an interesting message through the app from Paulie who's a regular contributor with um, interesting comments in that. He says, the flag issue is contentious, Richie, but you can understand why someone might find the English or British flags offensive because of our colonial, I can never say this word, colonialists past. But the Irish flag, he asks, really? It's like the ridiculous stance the fake left has for the British flags is being applied to the Irish simply because it's a majority white country. I, I, the first part of that interests me. I could never be offended by the English or... Br I'm an Irish Republican, but I could never be offended by the flags because I think it's preposterous to lay any blame for things that might have happened in my country, things that might have been ordered by the Crown. How could you lay the blame at the feet of anybody who's alive in the UK today? So for me, when I... Because I'm in Salford, there are a lot of white people in Salford, and sometimes when there's a trooping the colour or the Queen's birthday, out will come the Union Jack. I couldn't possibly be offended by that. And I'm an Irish Republican. I mean, you know, I would have no place here being offended by that. If I was to be offended, I should feck off back to Ireland. What do you think of that, Jana? Yeah, I don't think anyone should feel guilty for displaying their, their own flag. You know, if the flag was, of course, a really offensive flag, like I'm from America and I, I 
personally wouldn't uh, support the the KKK flag or, or any such thing like that. But if it's your national flag, there should be nothing offensive about hanging it outside your house on your pillar. I mean, you know, look at look at America. I grew up in a small coastal rural town and the amount of stars and stripes lining every street, even not even just on the 4th of July, but the flags are flying and no one should feel guilty for flying their flag. That's every right there, every right to do that. And it shouldn't offend others because that's that person's flag. Well said. And I'm going to finish today. Thanks for coming on short notice, by the way, today. I really appreciate it. I was going to fly solo this hour, you see. But then they, they, they well, they're always relevant to what you're doing. The issues that I speak about on this programme. So I thought I'd invite you on. And I'm glad I did. Tell me this. Um, I was obviously very disappointed, but not entirely surprised to learn that the venues that were going to be hosting the Think Local conference not too far from Mullingar, bowed to pressure from real fascists, from real censors and fascists. I'm not going to use the N-word, that might be a bit too strong, but fascists, they want people who they disagree with to be completely silenced, and many of them want people who they disagree with to be put in jail. I mean, some of these people, right? Um, I was really interested speaking to Sarah, how philosophical she was about this, how un not uncritical, but how there was such a lack of bitterness towards those who tried to get things cancelled. It almost was like she was kind of like, God love them because they really don't know what they're doing and how dangerous it is. How do you feel about it now a couple of weeks later? Because obviously you were heavily involved. How do you feel about what happened? It's terrible. And how do you move on from it? Yeah, well, I do feel compassion for these people. You know, I don't have hate in my heart for anybody. Um, I feel compassion for them. I feel sad for them because they're probably in such a bad place. I got a personal phone call from someone uh, who, who was one that helped close down the event. She closed down actually four this year, uh, boasted about on boasted it about on Twitter, called me personally a few days before the festival and said, uh, I heard Mount Druid. Uh, cancelled your venue. I shut down a few of your events and I'm going to come and shut down your next one. I'm bringing a busload of people because you're a Nazi fascist and she used lots of other language as well. And I'm going to shut you down. And I went straight to the guards uh, with a record of that phone call, with a record of all of her tweets. The Garda are investigating it, but it's been a couple of weeks. Uh, now it's with the sergeant and inspector because it's a delicate situation and we want to make sure that we handle it from a criminal perspective because we're out of pocket over 20,000 in expenses, not to mention the money that we would have earned in ticket sales. Like we have expenses to pay. So I guess the long and short of it is I feel compassionate and sad because they're obviously broken, tormented souls to try to rip others down, to not accept other views. Um, but I also feel that this is really, you know, if you look at did they win and, you know, we did a post up on our Twitter account is was it a success? Well, maybe for them it was, but our success because of the cancellation has gone so much further than if the event had even happened. It would almost look like from an outsider view, did it get cancelled on purpose? Because the amount of media attention, the amount of PR, the amount of people rallying around offering donations, um, most people didn't even ask for a refund on their ticket. You know, they we got 140,000 views on our press release. A lot more came out of it from the cancellation, a lot more strength in communities, which is what the Think Local movement is about. Um, the communities got stronger. The communities got louder. The communities got together after the cancellation more than if it was just a great day out for people. So they didn't win and we won't be silenced and it made us stronger. But, uh, you know, I do feel feel sad for that that small group of people who 
you know, can't, can't handle different views. Where should people go to find you online before we um, part company for today? Yeah, uh, my, Twitter, my Twitter handle is J-K-L-U-N-D-E-N and I have a Telegram, Natural Women's Council on Telegram. We are uh, been too busy to raise money or learn to build a website. We do really need a Natural Women's Council website. So any donations, uh, please, please throw them our way. Uh, you can PM me for those uh, or any web designers. Um, so Natural Women's Council or J-K-L-U-N-D-E-N on Twitter. I have a YouTube channel that I post a lot of videos on just on some of our campaigns and it's Miss M-I-S-S Jana K J-A-N-A-K-A-Y-E. I need to get one set up for Natural Women's Council, but we, we've been busy. But that's how to find me now. And then at We Think Local on Twitter and We Think Local local on Telegram for the Think Local movement. It's not an organization. It's a movement. It will continue. It will continue to get stronger. And we have people now all over the country who want to start to organize their kind of Think Local gatherings. But we'll make sure that venues uh, that we choose guarantee not to cancel us when they get such vicious, uh, aggressive threats from the far left terrorists. Well said and well done. Thanks for coming back on today. Good luck with the parenting over the summer holidays and all of that and all these decisions you have to make. Thanks, Jana. Great to have you back. Thanks very much, Richie. Have a good night. And you too. Bye for now. Jana London, live on the Richie Allen Show, Tuesday's edition. And uh, yeah, a lot of comment on that. Thank you for the comments. Uh, Trevor says it's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. A quote from Frederick Douglass. Thanks, Trevor. William says it all boils down to perception of one's flag. Yes, it does. Absolutely. Absolutely. I just never... There are those who don't believe me because I was, I suppose, a, a very committed Irish Republican at one time. I'm not so much these days because I understand more how the world works. The national sovereignty, it, it, it is important. But ultimately, I fell away from Republican parties years ago when I realised that those parties wanted a united Ireland um, that could just be handed over to Brussels. You see? So, it's Ireland... The, Ireland the, the Ireland I fantasised about never existed. So, I don't get too hung up on my republicanism now. But when I did... I came to the UK quite often for concerts. I came here for football, of course. I never had any issue with people and their flags. This is the UK. I'm in England. Sometimes you'll see the St. George's flag. Why wouldn't people, you, you, you know, have the flag in their possession? And the notion that by displaying the St. George's flag, that the person who lives in the street, two streets down from me, is somehow approving of crimes committed by the British Empire or colonial colonialists um, hundreds of years ago is preposterous. It's ridiculous. It's completely defunct, debunked. Nonsense. So the flag doesn't bother me at all. In fact, when I spent some time in Nottingham some years ago, the, those, those people I met who were very nationalistic um, were the least racist people and the most tolerant people I encountered. And that's the truth. They welcomed me with open arms when, that, when, when I was going to take over a pub there. And I told him I was an Irishman from the Republic of Ireland and an Irish nationalist. Because I was asked, what are your politics, Richard? Labour, Tories? No, no, no. I would have voted on the left in Ireland and nationalist parties. They didn't give a damn. You know, there was no none of this no surrender to the IRA bullshit. It was just like, all right, well... Mine's a pint of mild, Richie.
Okay, a pint of mild it is then. That's how it was. Yeah, so the most nationalistic I've met over the years, the most tolerant and the most open to discussing things with people like me. It's time for a tune, so it is, so it is, so it is. I'm Richie Allen. You're listening to The Richie Allen Show. Two minutes past six, Tuesday, the 1st of August, 2023. Speaking of Manchester, here's James and sit down. That is James and sit down on The Richie Allen Show. It's fast approaching six minutes past the hour of six this Tuesday. Thank you for all of your messages. Continue to send them in. Do download the app if you haven't done so before. Download the app. There is an app now. You'll get it via Google Play. You'll get it via the App Store. It's a tidy, tidy bit of kit. Do please leave a comment. Not a comment, but a review for it. It's had a few thousand downloads thus far, which is really nice. Um, Look, there's no point in me pretending to be impartial here. I have a lot of time for Dr. Jane Dunnigan. Um, I, 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 you can't butter up somebody like Dr. Jane Dunning. I'm not trying to do that. I have an enormous amount of time for her. When she was on back in mid-June, we were talking about her being removed from the medical register. Now, she was delighted to be removed. In fact, the witch hunt that was enacted against her was farcical because Jane had said for a long, long time, I do not want to be on the register you know that this was um, down to accusations that Jane had been telling parents, you know, that their children should get the measles rather than getting the jab and all of that stuff. It's gotten lots and lots of media coverage. But um, Jane sent me a message via via one of the apps that we use uh, the other day and said, um, three days, she said, until I am free. Before we say hello to Jane, uh, do check out her website, jane Dunigan. Dot, uh, co.uk. Let's welcome back to the programme Dr Jane Donegan. Jane, is it appropriate for me to call you doctor? I think it is, to be honest. Uh, well, it, it is. Yes. Because, because the, uh, the actual appellation, the word doctor in the UK, is a courtesy title. In the United States, when you become a doctor, one of your degrees is MD, Doctor of Medicine. We do have an MD in the UK, but that's like doing a PhD in medicine. So, all the doctors in the UK actually get bachelors. We have Bachelor of Medicine and Bachelor of Surgery. And so the doctor is entirely a courtesy title, which is, of course, the best sort of title to have. So there's nothing to take away. I love it. Anybody, anybody can call themselves doctor. Well, well, not everybody should call themselves doctor, but you've, you've certainly earned it. So you said to me online the other day, you said three days until I am free. Is your business now with the medical authorities in this country completely done? Well, not quite yet, because I think it's tomorrow. I'm not quite sure, actually, because they haven't sent me anything. Uh, I'm hoping, because they said that I could have 28 days to appeal, and then after that my name would be erased from the register, and I'm hoping that's just going to happen as a formality and that I don't actually have to do anything about it. Uh, And that should be tomorrow or sometime at midnight tonight, maybe. Do you know what? Going back to your message, I think so, because I think we originally said we might talk tomorrow. Yes. And then, that's right. And then we thought it might be better uh, today. I was moving around a few things. Um, can I ask you a few questions? We, we can chat generally about lots of yes. different things. I love, love having you on. I'm thrilled you're back. I really am, by the way. Um, when you were on previously, 
you always get the 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 kind of smarmy emails afterwards. Ah, Richie, you know, you either gave Jane a pretty easy run of it or you didn't ask her tough questions about her positions. So I don't have tough questions about your positions because the first time we spoke, I asked you a lot about your positions on, on, on various issues. On childhood vaccination, in general now, in general, I understand that children receive... God, they can receive a couple of dozen jabs, maybe a bit less, maybe a bit more. Um, is it possible for you? And of course it's possible. Because um, I won't interrupt you or, or, or get in your way. How would you describe your feelings about the vaccination schedule that exists for children today? Is it too complicated for you to be kind of simplistic about that or... Or just go ahead and tell us, how do you feel about the schedule that parents will be offered or confronted with in 2023? Well, uh, one of the things that people tend to think is that if you uh, question vaccination in any way, that you're some kind of anti-vaxxer and you just started off like that. Now, I started off in completely the opposite direction. I used to think that vaccines were the best thing, I would say, since sliced bread. But we all know mostly that sliced bread's not that great either. Um, I used to counsel what we thought of as the ghastly parents in the 80s who didn't want to give their children the whooping cough vaccine. And I learned at medical school that everyone used to die from these diseases for which we vaccinate. And the reason they stopped dying was because of the vaccines. And I couldn't understand why someone wouldn't want to give their children what we thought of as this life-saving procedure. And it wasn't until I had to actually seriously question it myself. I'd had people whispering in my ear from the holistic community, you know, that people had stopped dying from all these things before the vaccines were brought in. But I actually vaccinated my own children in 91 and 93, not out of ignorance, but in fact, with enormous superiority, knowing that I was doing the right thing. So I was really flawed when I started actually looking into it, which started with the measles rubella campaign in 94, when we vaccinated 7 million school children against measles and uh, rubella, when they said, well, you know, there's this measles epidemic coming, uh, but one shot won't be enough. Well, you might say, well, we know that because that's why there's two shots in the schedule now. But, but when it started in the UK in 68, it was one shot for life. It's like having the disease. Then it was two shots. So I thought, OK, one shot might be enough. We might need another. Nothing's 100 percent. But then they said you might need three shots because two shots might not be enough. And then I started thinking, you know, there's the, there are all these people who've got these different views. And ha I've been saying to people, well, you know, basically you should take the vaccine because we're told it's about 10 times more likely that you'll have a bad outcome if you have the disease than if you have the vaccine. I've learned a lot more now since then in terms of how you are actually supposed to manage fevers. But even the way we managed them then, the um, it just seemed to be a no-brainer. But now we were saying you could have all the adverse reactions associated with the vaccines, whatever they are, because no one can actually really tell you. And you can get the disease as well. And then I started looking into it, first of all, from fear about my own children, thinking, you know, what am I going to do if these things don't protect them from these, what I'm thinking of as deadly diseases, which I think I said on your show before, is a very strange attitude for me to have. Because growing up in the 1960s, I was sent by my parents to measles, mumps, rubella and chickenpox parties in the holidays. So I'd get ill in the holidays and not miss school. Me as well. It was really unfair. But somehow, 
from that point of view, I'd managed to go through medical school and come out thinking that my children would die if they didn't have the vaccine. So how strange is that? Let me, because um, I'm going to, in the absence of these people, now, by the way, if I have skin that is so thick, right, you couldn't penetrate it now with the mm. sharpest sword in the world. So if you feel bored by any of this because it's ground we've covered before, please tell me and we'll move on. And I'm not grandstanding now to my listeners. I mean that because I get irritated when I'm asked questions I've answered hundreds of times but vaccines are so topical right now and of course with RFK Jr who I want to ask you about a bit later on but I'm going to do now one, one or two little bits I dream that the people who promote things would have the courage and the decency to come on programmes like this and say right Richie uh, I'll be a gentleman or I'll be a lady and I'll, I'll, I'll have a bit of a back and forth with, with Jane but they won't so the Centres for Disease Control and Prevention in America and yes. this, this is research which is which is which has been validated by the medical authorities pretty much everywhere and the World Health Organization. You can laugh if you want, but I've got to do this, right? They say in the past two decades, the measles jab has probably estimated even to have prevented more than 30 million deaths globally. And they say that estimated deaths from measles dropped from around just over a million or just under 1,100,000 in the year 2000 to 60,700 in 2020. And they say, how could you not draw a correlation between vaccinating the world's children with the measles jab and such an enormous drop in measles deaths? That's what they would say. Right. OK, well, when it comes to estimated deaths, that's a bit like everybody saying now that the, the COVID jab has saved 20 million lives. And it's like Neil Ferguson saying that there were going to be uh, two million people dying in the United States from COVID and there were going to be uh, 500,000 in the UK. These are all computer estimated models. And one of the things you have to realise when we stop people dying of measles, if that is indeed the case, um, is that for, for parents, what parents want is a live, healthy child. They want a child who's not disabled and who's alive. And... In places where people are dying in their hundreds of thousands of measles, that's what they were doing in this country in the 19th century. And the number of people who used to die from measles, particularly under 15-year-olds, through the course of the 20th century dropped to almost zero before there were either vaccines or antibiotics. And they stopped dying because of sanitation and other um health interventions to do with the environment you know because the, the basic necessities you need to live are you need clean water adequate food ventilated housing someone to love and look after you and ideally fresh air and sunshine we get it sometimes here yeah. um, and the countries where people are dying in their hundreds of thousands are in the same social conditions that we were in this country beforehand so what you'll find is when people go in and give people measles vaccines you might find that they don't die so much of measles but they'll die of something else instead which for me as a parent is no great bonus because i just want my children to be alive and well and in fact one of the uh, one of the curators or the great researchers in the bandim project in guinea-bissau for about 40 or 50 years who's won no numerous prizes and accolades is the danish doctor dr peter arby and he was part of a world health organization uh, uh, group 
in this part of Africa where they trial all these vaccines, DTP, the diphtheria, tetanus and polio and uh, whooping cough vaccine, the measles vaccine. And they, they found certainly with a very high potency measles vaccine that it was such a brilliant vaccine. It produced such great antibody levels. But because they were scrupulous researchers, they noticed that girls below the age of two, while not dying of measles, died of other types of infectious diseases, which is really unusual because normally, I'm sorry to say this, but universally, boys, boy babies die more than girl babies and men die more than women. There's something about them. They're Why? stronger, but inherently not quite so fit. And and so they regretfully, they, they well, first of all, they tried it out in Senegal and they had the same tragic results and they had to with, regretfully withdraw it. And when he looked back over the years at actually the diphtheria, tetanus and whooping cough vaccine, the triple, the DTP, he was amazed to find out, because they had almost a control group, that the death rate among the vaccinated children was higher at every stage, irrespective of the level of nutrition than the ones who weren't vaccinated. And he said, we made this mistake. We introduced the vaccines and we never had a control group. And we've just been assuming it's correct. And this, these data show this is not the case. And now he's called an anti-vaccinator when he's worked with vaccines for all of his life. Anti-vaccinator because he... Steve. Because he's because he's actually looking at the science. Yeah. You have to remember that the word science comes from the Latin scio. I know. It's about knowledge. It's not about shutting people up. Imagine that. So he, he behaves as he would expect a scientist to do, and that is to reverse yes. himself when he figures out that something has gone wrong, announces it, and then moves on to try something else. That's interesting. Dr. Jane Dunningham is our guest, by the way. You wouldn't believe the messages coming in, right, um, on this particular subject. First of all, Gronia Kelly's been in touch. Richie, myself and my husband had the pleasure of listening to Jane speak in a hotel in Derry about 11 years ago. We're forever grateful. No neurofen or paracetamol needed in our house. Cold face clots sorted the fevers out. No vaccines administered since either, says Gronia. That's a lovely message. Do you remember that in Thank Derry? You. Thank you. I do. Yeah, I used to come to Ireland a lot, but I haven't come since um, since uh, since the COVID. And nowadays, actually, there are some people who've been trying to arrange something. But, you know, people have got used to sitting on their bottoms <laughs> and watching yeah. and watching screens in their houses. So it's quite difficult to get enough people live to actually want to come for a whole day. Yeah, but I don't doubt you'd do it, Jane. I don't doubt you'd have any shortage of people. Staying with illness in children, I did ask you, why do we think it is that girls and women are a bit more robust than men? My tongue isn't in my cheek. I'm genuinely interested. Why are they stronger in terms of their core? Yeah, men? well, so yes, because um, cause men are stronger, but women have got more sort of stamina in some ways. And the way I think of it, and I actually got complained about this by someone who I'd been explaining about this to in a surgery, is that um, if you look at the embryological development of, of girls and boys, it, everybody starts off as a girl, and then under the influence of the, the male hormones, the ovaries slip down into the scrotal sac, and everything changes so it becomes female, and the, the womb doesn't form. So if you're thinking about car insurance, because I'm a very practical person, so I think of practical examples. If you think about car insurance, if you have the ordinary car, you will um, you will pay X amount of insurance. But if you've modified it in any way, it's regarded as being less robust and therefore your insurance payments go up. So I always think, in my simplistic way, that the reason boys are not so robust is because they're actually modified versions. 
Fantastic. That's not too insulting. No, it isn't. No, no. It's a great analogy. I, I understand it. It's a really interesting analogy. Um, I wanted to ask about something. Now, I'm not putting any words in your mouth because while we've spoken and while I've seen you online and seen presentations you've given, um, I, I, I'm obviously not qualified to make any statements about vaccination and autoimmune diseases or vaccination and autism and stuff like that. I'm not. But I... I've read a million articles. I'm a reasonably decent journalist, not fishing for compliments. I'm reasonably good and I'm ethical, completely ethical. I always have been. And um, yeah. I've argued with people over the years. I've said, but look, um, we never had, um, you know, so many children presenting with spectrum type issues. We've never had so much of that. And maybe there is a correlation with the rise in these um, problems with children as the jabs became more and more plentiful and what have you. But some pretty learned people said to me, well, hang on, Richie. We don't know for a fact that pre-vaccine schedules is that we didn't have a lot of autism. These were pre-internet, sometimes pre-television days when yeah. people when people kept themselves to themselves and they weren't advertising that their child was a bit special. So maybe, so what do you think about that? You know, that when, when you hear people say, you know, uh, it's not true that autism went through the roof when the vaccination schedule became so much more huge that we always had these things, we just never spoke about them. What do you reckon? Okay, well, there's two things about that. One is that the actual autism was described in the 1940s in a paper. And these were a very few sporadic cases. Um, and it was actually thought at that time that it was a bit like schizophrenia, this idea that some people had these refrigerator mothers and they somehow brought up these children um, to be unable to express themselves in what we call normal in terms of emotions and so on, maybe because they spent too much time doing lunch. Um, and yeah. incidentally, it just did happen that in the United States, when vaccines first came out, I'm not talking about the smallpox ones, I'm talking about the <clears throat> more recent ones like the diphtheria and the, and, the, and the whooping cough, is that the more sort of upper class, not that they have classes in America, but the more affluent people used to be the ones to go and get the jabs. Now it's actually the opposite. In, in many cases, it's the, the mothers with the higher education who tend to jab their children less. But there weren't enough um, children with autism to actually make an autism society until about the 60s, which is actually about the time that the jabs started becoming universal. So this idea that it's just about MMR, these early jabs all had mercury, which is definitely neurotoxic as well as the aluminium. And the idea that it's just better diagnosis, well, it might be a bit better diagnosis for some of the people we call a bit aspergy they call themselves that you know the or the computer nerds or or people who are a bit sort of more happy to sit um doing their things on a screen than actually interacting with other people but when you're talking about the severely 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 disabled people with autism where are they you know you, you couldn't hide those people they wouldn't be able to go to normal school they'd be filling up some kind of um uh nursing homes where are the ones who are now 60 and 70 80 where are all these people is they're not there because they weren't there so the idea it's just better diagnosis is not actually the case why in my opinion in your opinion why has it why seemingly anyway if the jabs have played some role in a rise in autism why is it so few? Why are so many of us, the great majority, maybe I'm wrong now, this is just me offering my silly uneducated opinion, but it seems the great majority of us are not affected by 
the autism or the spectrum things like I would have had the polio jab when I was a kid maybe I had something else I don't know but even a lot of the kids that I see now today walking around Salford kids that I interact with very young families around where I am in Weston Salford and the kids seem to be very well adjusted happy chatty talkative curious kids and I know they're getting these jabs but they seem okay yes well the thing is that with, if everybody who had a jab became autistic or disabled or they died, eventually someone would notice. I don't say immediately, but eventually yeah. someone might notice. Also, we've started to have a different level of what we think is health. For example, if you want to adopt a child, you will be regarded as not a suitable person if for the children you have, you don't visit the doctor at least twice a year. So it's regarded that, you know, bring your child to the doctor at least twice a year is normal, whereas it's actually normal never to see the doctor. And I was in Cuba in 2019 for three weeks in August. It was very hot. And while I was there, I was just blown over by the vitality of the children that I saw there. They were different to the children that we have here. Here we see children happily playing and running around. And they looked fabulous. And I thought to myself, Maybe it's because it's a it's a barricaded country. It's boycotted. The United States doesn't trade with it. Maybe it's because they don't have so many jabs. I thought to myself, seeing as jabs are one of the things I think about. So when I got back to the UK and I had a better internet, I looked it up. And then to my surprise, I found that not only do they have all the vaccines that are in the UK and the US, almost the US schedule, they have about a 99% uptake because it's a communist country and you don't get to choose. But... What they don't have is they don't have paracetamol. It's not one of the things that they have easily available. It's a scarce import. They're not told to give it before they have the jabs and then two or three more times afterwards just so that the parents don't notice the effect the jab is having on the child. And when children have fevers, they're not all recommended to have paracetamol. And when I looked more, I found that the autism rate in Cuba is about over 200 times fewer then in the United States, and you might say this diagnosis thing again, oh, well, they're just not diagnosing it because there's some, you know, um, island um, in, uh, in, in the, whatever it is where they are in the Caribbean or whatever. They have fabulous doctors in Cuba. Their doctors are so good, they export them all over the world every time there's a, a disaster. The Cuban doctors are second to none. And so when they're diagnosing, they're doing it properly. And there's a very interesting researcher um, from the Western um from the Western United States who'd actually looked into this a lot. He's the one who had the figures. And he was looking at all the ways that that uh, paracetamol can interfere with how you uh, actually process things like vaccines and how you manage fevers in a much more technical way than me, because I've been, I suppose you could call it preaching um, for the last more than 20 years about how important it is that you don't mess up the fever with either paracetamol or ibuprofen. Yeah, you have, yeah. And he was looking at the things that interacted. So so it's not just the vaccines. It's like, it's a whole load of things that come together. And it's also the schedule, because it used to be far fewer vaccines, and then you'd have them at three, five, and 10 months. But in 1990, we changed it to two, three, and four months. So if you were the one of the ones who was a little bit vulnerable, for whatever reason, we don't know, because no one's doing any research, You'd have them half of your life earlier, the first one. Then you'd have another one with only four weeks to recover and another one with only another four weeks to recover as opposed to two months and then five months. And then if you were one of the susceptible ones, which we don't know who they are, when you got to your first year, instead of having a measles jab on its own, you'd get measles, mumps and rubella all in one go. And if you were one of the susceptible ones, you might be one of the ones who went over. 
Now, this is Bombshell. Please don't tell me that you shared this Cuba story with me before because you didn't. No, I, I didn't. I, no, I have a great memory. This is, no. bomb, th- this is actually bombshelling me. I'm absolutely shocked to hear this now. So you thought, well, they're not having the bloody jabs there. And then you find out communist country, they are compelled to take the jabs. But, yeah. um, but seemingly absent is the autism. And then, and, and I noticed, and yeah. not, see, there's just there's autism that we call autism, but there's general vitality in children, and the vitality in the children and the young people and the adults, where they have very little of many things, was, and and also because they can't import all um, all these um, fertilizers and so on, most of the stuff's organic because they've got no choice. It, it's all these things. I, I noticed myself they were so vital. That's why I went off to look at it. And interestingly, one of the criticisms of the general medical council expert who uh, is a has been on the joint committee on vaccination and immunization since 2008 and has been a deputy chairman and an acting chairman called dr reardon um sounds like like he's an irishman it sounds like an irishman Um, yeah he he criticized me for saying that because it seems to be that as a doctor you're not even supposed to think about anything at all not even think (laughs) just do it. I wasn't even saying this was the case. I was actually chewing the cud with some of the people in my lectures because that's what we do. I give a talk and then people from the audience make comments. And it was actually one of the audience members who reminded me that everything is organic just about because they can't afford the agrochemicals. And we were just passing it backwards and forwards. This is how hypotheses come. This is how we learn about what to do in our life. But as a doctor, it seems you're not allowed to do that. And how frustrated you with your credentials, your qualifications, the the journey you went on to discover for yourself, how frustrating is it for you knowing that the that Cuba is something that must be studied? It must be studied. Yes. You know, because you said that there might be some correlation with the fact that they don't use the paracetamol for fevers and stuff like that. And this might go some way to explaining why there isn't so many cases of autism. I mean, this must keep you up at nights thinking this stuff has to be looked into. Well, a long time ago, I realized as a young doctor that if I tried to save the world, I'd end up jumping off Beachy Head. <laughs> and the only thing you can do is be like the drip of water. You know, that drip of water, it drips over thousands of years and it eventually makes stalactites and stalagmites yeah. and it makes caves. And all you can do is your little bit. And that has to be enough. And then people who want to hear, they'll hear. And it's up to them to take it up. So that's why... Until this uh, General Medical Council case, I'm not a person who's been on, you know, breakfast TV or whatever, not that they'd have me, and so on. I've just plugged away at when I see people, I give them the benefit of the information that I have acquired. And I also point them to the actual uh, government publications that their doctor should have read and discussed with them, but maybe sometimes hasn't. And I also give lectures because as a doctor, doctor is from doceo. Latin again, which is I teach. Doctors are supposed to be teachers. They're not supposed to be, uh, uh, you know, sergeant majors who say do this. They're supposed to say this is your condition. I'm going to teach you about it, so you have some understanding, and then you can make proper decisions about how you want to go ahead. I've just been looking up paracetamol um, to try and argue with you in the absence of the other side who never want to speak to anybody. Mm. And as I'm looking up paracetamol or paracetamol, amazingly enough, David has gotten in touch. How are you, David? Because I'm trying to look up the properties of paracetamol. And David says, Richie, um, it's an important tool for fever because in extreme cases, fever can swell the brain, causing harm to the brain. So paracetamol is useful. It's important. Not a poison when taken in therapeutic doses. What do you reckon? 
Well, obviously, it's not a poison, meaning it doesn't kill you when you take it in therapeutic doses. The thing is that uh, a lot of people confuse fever with heat stroke. Heat stroke is a completely different uh, thing that is nothing to do with fever. Um, It's to do with being out in the hot and not drinking enough. And it's not the same as what uh, fever is in children or adults. In eventually, the guidelines caught up with what all the holistic people have been saying for years. In 2007, the uh, NICE guidelines said, do not give antipyretics, which are fever lowers, for the sole purpose of reducing a fever in an otherwise well person. And you might say, how can you be well when you've got a fever? Well, you're well if you respond normally to someone smiling or looking at you, you're drinking, you've got wet nappies or you're peeing normally and uh, you can sleep nicely. Um, And in terms of the body... The body is very economic. We keep forgetting how clever the body is. We just keep thinking how clever we are. But the body's very clever. And it keeps the temperature in the body at the right level for all the things we need to do, like eating, drinking, digesting, building up, building down, metabolism, whatever. Um, it doesn't make it more than it needs to be, because to do that would mean more more food coming in, more metabolism, more breaking up, down excretion, whatever. So it just has us at exactly the right level to do all the normal everyday things we do. So when it decides to have a fever, you can be darn sure it needs to have one. And that's why it's doing it. And when we interfere, we cause all sorts of problems. So whatever infectious disease you want to talk about, no one dies of the normal course of the infectious disease. Um, I'm talking about people who have the wherewithals for life, like, you know, clean water, adequate food, ventilated housing, someone to love and look after them and uh, some fresh air and sunshine. They die of complications and the complications are all invasive. So the normal course is you get a fever, which speeds up the way uh, how fast your liver detoxifies, speeds up how your kidney filters, speeds up how the white cells gobble up foreigners. Um, and you might have diarrhea and vomiting. That's a quick way of getting things out. You might have a rash. That's it coming out through your skin. Uh, you might lose your appetite usually because if you're trying to get stuff out, you don't need to be taking more stuff into process. And the slow ways, you might have mucus. But when you block those avenues, then if it goes into your bladder, you get cystitis. If it goes into your kidney, you get nephritis, your lungs, pneumonia, your ears, ear infections. That's not such a big deal. Your brain, meningitis, and much worse, it goes into your bloodstream and you get septicemia. So people don't die of the normal course of an infectious disease when they have the wherewithals for life. They die because people interfere with what is happening. And then we say it's the disease that's killed them and it's not, it's the standard medical treatment, which is actually against the guidelines. The guidelines in 2013, this is nice, said do not give paracetamol and ibuprofen, not use, not calling them antipyretics anymore, do not use them um, for the sole, uh, do not use them to stop febrile convulsions because they don't. Uh, and they say use them for distress only as long as there is distress. Don't use them together. Only consider using the other one if the distress recurs before the dose of the first one is due. Okay, so even the guidelines have caught up. Their reasons for doing it are not great because you. they say, well, we said this because we couldn't find any benefit for lowering the fever. And I, th- and I thought... You must have not noticed the enormous literature in the medical literature, looking, doing PubMed searches and looking things up, um, which show that when you lower the fever, you increase the incidence of invasive disease, you increase the incidence of pneumonia, you increase the incidence of uh, meningitis. And in fact, in the, in the Bulletin of the World Health Organization in 2000, uh, a professor of pediatrics from Texas was saying fever is an ancient, adaptive, 
mechanism for which there are few, if any, good reasons for lowering. And although overall it doesn't cause much harm, lowering it, although you would see if you came to my lecture, it's because nobody notices the harm. Um, He said, overall, it increases morbidity, which is illness, and mortality, which is death, in both the developed and the developing world. So really, the literature is 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 against lowering the fever. And the other half of the literature is all about, it used to be about patient expectations, how to explain to patients that they don't need to lower it. But the bigger part is how to stop medical professionals from telling patients to take it. That's the biggest problem we have now. Well-informed patients <coughs> who quote the nice guidelines, excuse me, <coughs> and uh, and get threatened with people like social services. I suppose they would do, yeah, in the event that they took the advice and allowed the fever work its course through uh, the mm. child. Let me read some comments. Before I do, you're listening to Dr. Jane Dunnigan. Look at the time, it's flying by. We will make five minutes for RFK Jr. in a moment, but I've got to read a few comments because they've come in. They're decent enough to send them in. We should read them. Uh, Patricia yes. says, I, Pat- Patty says, I've read the baby boomer generation will be the last that will have a lifetime with no measles. The reason being... While the effect of the measles shot wears off, natural immunity that comes with having measles doesn't. That's Patty. Thanks for that. Uh, That's true. You agree with that? Uh, Bernard reckons vaccines are the only cause of autism. Uh, There is no other cause, but autism has been purposely engineered into vaccines, says Bernard. Thanks, Bernard. Uh, David's message is too long. Christine says, Richie, our local special needs school has had to put on three extra play school classes in the next school year to deal Mm. with the numbers of kids on the spectrum. And as a result, says Christine, the sessions are shorter. And we've had this from Sarah. Richie, I've said before, I'm a learning support assistant in a senior school. The level of children who have autism or educational needs is staggering. We cannot employ enough people to support the children in class. That's Sarah, the learning support assistant. And Isabel came on to say, uh, Jane probably knows this, um, but it's worth mentioning. In Cuba, it's often way too expensive to have internet, so the young grow up normally like we used to do, not sitting in front of a screen all the time. What's well, it? I must tell you that is the truth. You know, you could walk through Havana at three o'clock in the morning and not worry about anybody mugging you or grabbing you or anything like that. And you see some of these people. And in Cuba, they have white people, they have black people, and they have people who are in between. And they don't have any type of racial equality thing. Everybody is just friends. There is no, I must be nice to that person because I'm in, I'm, I'm a, uh, you know, equal opportunity person. They are just buddies. It's lovely to see. And you see these people with these precision haircuts, you know, that look like really tough guys. And they're sitting around at like, 10 10 o'clock at night with a big table that's on their knees like about eight of them um with that great big table and what are they doing these hard-looking people they're playing dominoes playing dominoes i love it (laughs) they're not mugging people or threatening people jillian has come on to say um about she might be talking about paracetamol and she says people who took the drugs felt less emotional pain, suggesting that similar brain circuits operate for both. But then she says, but the latest research published in the journal uh, Psychological Science shows that paracetamol may have effects beyond relieving pain and instead dull our emotional responses more generally. 
That's not well, a good that's, thing. That's really, really interesting. And now, like I did in Cuba, because I listen to people and then I go and look things up. So I must tell you that subsequent to finding those things out, there is actually a class action lawsuit in the United States, uh, which is uh, mothers who took paracetamol while they were pregnant, suing the manufacturers for the fact that their child became autistic afterwards. So I'm not saying this is the reason. I'm just saying you put bits of jigsaws together and you look, you keep looking. So some of these things are multifactorial. And I do think in terms of autoimmunity, you know, the point of a vaccination is to hyperstimulate your immune system. We don't test the vaccines to see if they stop you getting a disease. We test the vaccines to see if they produce lots of antibodies. That's how you get a license. And that's why you can get something like the terrible failure of the COVID jabs, because they didn't actually do what they were supposed to do, and they weren't ever tested to do that. So something that's going to massively stimulate the immune system, which is supposed to, first of all, if you have a vaginal delivery, pick up the bugs in the birth tract, and then pick up the bugs on the mum, and then pick up the bugs from the breast milk, because there's a connection between that and the, and the, the gut bugs little by little, so you find out what's you and what's not you, suddenly you get hyper-stimulated into making massive reactions at the age of two, three, and four months. Or in the United States on day one, when you have your hepatitis B vaccine, hepatitis B that you get from, unless your mum's positive, you get from sex, tattoos, used needles, drugs, you know, um, and you just don't develop normally. You start, you end up just being on red alert all the time. And as I said, it doesn't happen to everybody, but you just have to look around. It has an effect. And as I said, I was bowled over by what I found in Cuba. <laughs> so, but the thing is, you have to have to be open-minded. Although somebody said you mustn't be so open-minded that your that your brain drops out. But Fair you enough. have to keep looking. And and if somebody's, and as you know, I I've said before, I read people's books that, for example, I think I don't agree with, because you'd be surprised what very interesting nuggets you find in such books when you go and look them up and think, how come I never knew that when yeah. I've got all this higher education? You never stop learning, do you? And it's, it's, no, it's apparent must when, never stop learning. when we talk. Now, um, our listeners might not know this. If they have great memories, they might remember Jane coming on the programme uh, a few years ago and talking about her heritage. Jane has got Irish heritage. She's got Jewish heritage. And we, we, we chatted briefly about that. And Jane was kind enough to come on the programme. Some nasty things have been said about this programme over the years and and myself. And we, we don't have to talk about any of that. But it is interesting. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the son of Bobby Kennedy, who, of course, was assassinated in 1968. God forgive me, I'm supposed to be a history graduate. And, uh, and of course, his uncle, of course, the most famous assassination, maybe, of all time. Now, he's taken a real interest in uh, Dr. Tony Fauci, the most senior medical advisor to the US government and he's taken a real interest in vaccine injury has uh, yes. Robert F. Kennedy and he's always been very interested in the health of children um, the New York Post ran a story or the New York Times or even both maybe uh, a couple of weeks back alleging that comments he made about the about how COVID affected different groups of people and how it didn't affect some groups of people as much as others. It was claimed um, viciously, I think, but I shouldn't maybe editorialise here, um, mm. that he's an anti-Semite. What do you yeah, reckon? Well, this whole thing about anti-Semitism. Uh, Robert F. Kennedy is a complete thorn in the side of the Democrats, even though he's probably the first really viable Democratic candidate that they've had for decades. And they're trying to kill him in a, a figurative way, more than more than the Republicans are. 
and they they wave this anti-Semitic card all the time. And I was I was listening to an interview uh, on the UK column with David Scott and a man called Stephen. Um, can't remember his surname now. Um, he's a he's a he's a vicar who's been banned by the Church of England from acting as a vicar until he's 79 because they say he's anti-Semitic. Oh, it's Sizer. I think it's Stephen Sizer. And I don't agree with everything he says, but then um, I certainly agree with his right to say them. And some of the things he picked up, which I thought were interesting, was one of the things he said is that anti-Semitism used to mean people who didn't like Jews. But now it seems to be it's more to do with people who Jews don't like. And that sounds simplistic, though, doesn't it? I mean, that's yeah, no, but it's the thing is in the in this country we have the board of deputies, and they don't seem to realise that they're being used as patsies by anybody who wants to weaponise anti-Semitism because you ring them up and you'll get a dialogue quote, and whatever they say to the person, they go, "Oh yes, we thoroughly condemn that. We thoroughly condemn this," and they haven't even looked to see what they were saying. I mean, they did this about Neil Oliver, and he he had somebody on his program who he was Jewish, as it turned out, and also. He'd, he'd once he said something that was something like the title of a book that was once written that might have had something anti-Semitic in it. I mean, it just yeah. becomes really ridiculous. Yeah, hang so, on, I've got to um, jump in, Jane. I've got to jump in because, look, you I've, you only know because I've told you. I've got close Jewish friends, and they've got very 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 different opinions about these things. Some of them are very much on board with how I might see things. Others, you know, they others tell me friends of mine and people I employ in fact accountants and my solicitor happens to be Jewish they say to me Richie look but one of my accountants said to me before that he doesn't believe that there's an epidemic of anti-semitism in the UK he, he reckons it's exaggerated he's never had any issues and he loves open dialogue he loves free speech there is no but now but I've heard from him after saying there's no but I've heard from him and he said you know some Jews are just tired of the same old tropes you know yeah, that, uh, they are. And they're the same old thing. Oh, Jews are rich. They control the world. And yeah. They control the media. So there's this joke about an old Jew sitting on a park bench in the 1930s in Berlin, and he's reading he's reading the Der De, De Sturmer, which is a, a big anti-Semitic yeah. newspaper. And one of his friends comes along and he says, "Hi, me." He says, "Why are you reading that anti-Semitic rag?" He said, "Well, he said if I look around." All I hear is, you know, that they're going to kill us and they hate us and we're awful and we're vermin and all these. He said, when I read this, it tells me that we're rich and we control the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's the same old boring thing like the Protocols of Zion, you know, which weren't even written by a Jew. No, and no, but you don't. But, but, but you, drinking the blood of Christian children. Well, you know, if you know anything about how to make things kosher in Judaism, you're not allowed to eat any blood. The animals have to be have to have all the blood removed. Yes. So if Never mind you're not allowed to eat children because they're not kosher because they're human. <laughs> you know, there's a big thing against eating blood. So if you were going to eat anything, it certainly wouldn't be blood. No, cannibalism is certainly outlawed. No, but you did cleverly kind of stop me before I got to my point, right? So I'm going to make oh, yeah. my point. So, so, so my Jewish pal said, Robert F. Kennedy is not stupid. When he says that COVID itself, the, the, the illness, whatever it was, mm. um, you know, didn't seem to have as much of an effect on Jews and maybe Chinese. My Jewish pal said, we're just sick of that nonsense. Robert F. Kennedy is not stupid. There is a little bit of, you know, the Jews are responsible for everything. You know, COVID didn't really hurt well, the Jews. I don't know of any research anywhere that would show that the Chinese were not susceptible to yeah. whatever COVID was. 
all the Jews. And certainly looking at the, the thing which comes by from the, the weekly thing that came by from my local synagogue about who's died this week, there were certainly loads and loads of them. And I, But I actually don't think that was from COVID. I think that was subsequently after they'd had the jab. Um, and the thing about COVID is I read the Fauci book that uh, RF Kennedy uh, wrote. I got it the minute I could get it in the UK and I read it from cover to cover because it's the sort of book that I like. It's a bit dense, but I like dense books. Um, but as for the Fauci lab hypothesis, you see, this whole thing is all about how it was. If you believe that, you believe it was a real killer disease and it was killing everybody. And I actually don't think that what we had was any more than a really bad seasonal whatever we have in the winter and I well I think I have said on your show yeah. before maybe that in the year 99 to 2000 in the UK we had so many people dying that some NHS hospitals had to hire refrigerated lorries and leave them with their engines running in the car parks to put the bodies in because the mortuaries were full they cancelled the nurses leave the doctors leave all non-urgent surgery and there were ambulances going from London as far north as Derby to try and get an intensive care bed and nobody, apart from one person, I've said this to, can remember that it even happened because nobody said anything. We just carried on yeah, carried as usual. On. We didn't lock the country down. We didn't make people wear masks. We didn't isolate them. And when you look at the death rate for all deaths from the Office for National Statistics for the year 2020, you will see if you look at the total death rate per 100,000 adjusted for age, you'll find that, yes, it was the highest death rate in the previous nine years. OK, but it was the ninth highest death rate in the previous 20 years. And it was the 19th highest death rate in the previous 30 years. So what are they going on about? Apart from we did reduce the number of beds in the NHS by about 140,000. By half over 30 years. Yeah. Now, again, let me be devil's advocate there. And we've only got five minutes. Look how quick that hour has gone. Let me be devil's yeah. advocate there. So I've bitched about this. Excuse my language. Right. I've like you, I've gone on. And I've said, oh, it's ridiculous. They reduced the beds by half. But then a doctor got in touch with me and said, but they didn't need all those beds, Richie, because healthcare has improved dramatically in 30 years. What do you say? Uh, well, they do say that a lot of those beds were psychiatric ones when they closed all those psychiatric hospitals. Um, I think when they say health has improved a lot, I don't know what they mean by that, because everybody I look at is now puffing inhalers. They're all yeah. on multiple amounts of uh, tablets for their blood pressure. They've all got kidney failure. They've got heart failure. They've got chronic lung conditions. And I don't think people are a lot better. And when I see the size of some people and I see one of the things I, I can do is when I would see people in a surgery is I'd know how old they were. So there'd be people I'd think were about 60 or 70. And when I'd look at their date of birth, they'd be about 30 something. Right. And I think, how does a 30 something year old look like this? You know, yeah. um, so I think we're actually getting a lot sicker. Yeah, look, um, I attend a pharmacy on Liverpool Street in Salford. Now, I get a salbutamol inhaler once a month. I don't use it very often. In fact, they pile up. I don't know why I keep getting them. There must be some... The, it's the, like an umbrella. It's like yeah, an umbrella. that's exactly what it is. My, mm -hmm. my Jewish pal says that there must be a lot of Jew in me, or Jewish mother, but for, you know, continuing to, to stockpile this stuff. Well, it's lucky he's saying that, because if somebody else said it, you'd oh, be anti-Semitic. Anti that's right, yeah. No, he's, <laughs> he said that to me before. He says, uh, by stockpiling this stuff, he said, that's what, you know, Jewish mums would do. You, yeah. you know, you, overcautious, you, you can never, you can never know. But you're right. I, I go in there. Sometimes, of course, you've got to wait. And I see people walking out of there with enormous packages of medicine yes. and tablets. And I, I do not have your qualifications or your experience, but I know enough to know there's something very wrong with that. Yes. And I have, uh, I mean, I have friends uh, who, they come from places like Romania. And up in the mountains, in the village where they come from, there's 90 and 95-year-olds 
you know, hauling carts up hills and taking their sheep out to the pasture because, you know, because if they don't do it, no one's going to do it. And this idea that we're all living longer. You look at some of the graveyards in some places like Cyprus, you'll see those people living to their hundreds even now. But the younger generation, they're all dying at 40 and 50. Come back anytime you like, Jane. Just before um, Jane um, bids us um, good evening, uh, Jane's website is Jane, J-A-Y-N-E, and then it's dash or hyphen, however you want to say it, jane-dunnigan.co.uk. It's always a pleasure to have you on. It's a, a treat, so thanks for your time. I really Thank mean that, Thank you very Jane. much for inviting me, Richie. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And I hope you'll come back in the autumn. We'll have another natter. Yeah. Put the world Please to rights. Thanks, Jane. Bye for now. Wonderful lady, Dr. Jane Dunnigan, live on uh, Tuesday's Richie Allen Show. Thank you for the messages that came in there. They were legion. Tim reckons they, and I think he might mean Cubans, they certainly don't have fast food restaurants either. I'll tell you what, Tim. When myself and herself lived on the Costa del Sol, as we did for quite a number of years, it always made me giggle. When we passed the Burger King and the McDonald's, there were, I never remember a time when we passed them. We don't eat that stuff ourselves now. But I don't remember them being busy or rammed. Not even with teenagers. And I thought that's a wonderful thing. You know, Spanish. Now, the expats would go in there. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not being kind of Debbie Downer on the Brits and on the Irish, on the Paddies. But the expats would use them. But you didn't see too many Spanish kids hanging around these places. Interestingly enough, because, you know, their own food is good enough, it's wholesome enough, I suppose they wouldn't need to do that, to be hanging around, you know, the fast food places. Interesting comments that, yes, thank you. And Steph came on to say, anecdotal report, hepatitis B is possibly connected to multiple sclerosis. Several years ago, a midwife who worked up north reported that one maternity had stopped giving the jab to midwives because a lot of midwives developed multiple sclerosis. I remember her telling me when I was a midwife, says Steph, thank you uh, so much for that, Steph. A big shout out to Jana London. Thanks, Jana. And thanks once again to Dr. Jane Dunnigan for her time on Tuesday's programme. I'm back with you tomorrow, Wednesday. Mark Windows, windowsontheworld.net. The boy Windows will be on the programme with me tomorrow. I'm looking forward to that. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday. I'm closing out today's programme with a bit of Michael Jackson. From the Off the Wall album 1979, not long after Michael had been in The Wiz with Diana Ross, this is Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. Speak tomorrow. Bye.